I'm a, a good old Methodist boy, so I want to kick this off properly, and I want to say to you, he is risen. Now, you've got a response. I want some interaction. I'm going to say to you, he is risen. You get to say, he is risen indeed. And I, I love doing that because we're not just singing about it. We're not just going to read it in the Word. But this is the opportunity that we get to make that declaration together as a house. And it gets to shift something in this atmosphere. It positions us as a people of faith. And it's a proclamation of faith that goes out on this Resurrection Sunday. So if I'm going to say to you, and you can respond to me, he is risen. Thank you. I expected a little bit more of that excitement. Thank you. I'm going to do it one more time because really I want you to declare it. I want it to be a faith statement. Don't worry about those around you. It's, it's, we get to declare our faith today and that's what we're celebrating. So one more time. He is risen. That's what I was expecting. Beautiful. So we're going to be jumping into the book of Luke, Luke 24. If you've got your Bibles, you can open there. It's the last chapter of Luke. And we're going to be on a journey where it's Resurrection Sunday and something takes place in the evening time in one of the appearances of Jesus in an unlikely moment in, in terms of all that's going on uh, on that Resurrection Day. But while you're opening there, I just wanted to start with a story I heard. It was April the 12th, 2007, so around the same time, 12 years ago, that a 39-year-old man stationed himself next to a trash can in a Washington subway station. You might have heard the story. Uh, he was just wearing a sweatshirt and a cap. He was by a dustbin, and he took out his guitar case. He opened it up, put a few coins in there. He took out his violin, and what he was going to do was he was going to play a, a number from Buck that was one of the most challenging pieces for violin. But it wasn't just any violin he was playing. He was playing a violin from 1713. It was handcrafted by Stradivari, and it was so famous it had been stolen twice. And this was a bit of a setup that the Washington Post had devised with this man named Joshua Bell, who was meant to be the greatest violinist uh, one of the greatest violinists in his time. And this was the experiment. Would the greatest violinist in the world, playing the best music ever written on the most expensive violin, get anyone's attention at Russia? That's the experiment. And so Russia started, you can actually, you can go watch it uh, on the web. It wasn't great quality, the video, so I didn't think to play it today. But uh, three minutes into his performance, 63 people had rushed by, and one person had slowed down and looked and then continued on his way. Six minutes into it, one man stopped and he leaned against the wall and listened. Over a few minutes, there'd been over 1,070 people that had rushed by. 27 people threw change in while they were running by. He had gathered $32. That's what he gathered. This is a man who gets paid over $1,000 a minute when he performs in concerts. And the Washington Post an article of this talking about just rush hour and us not noticing what's around and, uh, and that which is in our vicinity. And they got a Pulitzer Prize. And the one line from that article says this, he is the one who is real. They are the ghosts. Meaning they are just on the periphery. They are just uh, ethereal here and there. But there was a reality of him in the midst of the subway. And uh, we love those sort of stories that speak about greatness that's gone unnoticed, that speak about talent that's ignored, that speaks about fame, that's overlooked. And in this journey on the road to Emmaus, we're going to discover that uh, in the most profound way as we discover Jesus on the journey along 
with these disciples. So it's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's resurrected. He's done what he said he would do. He's got the keys of hell and Hades and death. He's triumphed. The enemy thought they had defeated him. They thought that they had destroyed the temple, but he's rebuilt himself. And now the enemy is afraid because it's no longer Friday. It's Sunday and death has been swallowed up in life. That's what's unfolding on this Resurrection Sunday morning as we see the disciples engaging with the story. And some of the ladies have gone because they don't know this yet. And they go and they go to the tomb and the stone has been rolled away. They've got spices to treat the body of Jesus. But as they go and he's not there and they are bewildered, what on earth on behalf of heaven is happening here. And so they walk out and they encounter two angels. And these angels say to them, and I love this statement, it should speak to us today. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? That's quite a statement, huh? Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? It's a statement that's full of such promise and hope, yet a statement that should arrest us and arrest our attention from what we're caught up in. Because so often we're hungry for the presence of God. So often we're hungry for the power of God, the resurrection life, the redemptive power, the restorative power, the redeeming power, the relational presence of God, but we, we seem to be looking uh, in the wrong places and in deadened areas. I, I enjoyed someone who said it this way, why are you looking for a living God in a dead place, in a dead relationship, in a dead text thread late at night as you're scrolling through, in a dead Facebook page, why are you looking for the living God and dead religion? Because there's a difference about talking about religion and knowing that Jesus is near. It's the same difference that happens between talking about electrical theory and putting your finger into a live voltage plug socket. There's something different. Why are you searching for the living amongst the dead? And there's this challenge that goes out from uh, the angels on that morning. And that encouragement should come to us today. And I'm glad that we're here because we're searching for the living, risen king in the midst of life and in the midst of his body. And so we see these disciples in this place, and there's a challenge that comes because often when we don't find the one that we're looking for, and when we only encounter dead things, we can become filled with a sense of discouragement and hopelessness. Proverbs 13 verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And here in this story, we're going to encounter Jesus, and what I love about that is he is hope. He is the one. He just, doesn't just bring hope. Jesus is hope, and he's going to carry hope to some disciples who've grown a little bit disillusioned, who've, who've lost hope in this moment. Some of us here today might be in the same place, and this day is a day that we celebrate hope. Hal Lindsey, the evangelist, um, he's passed away now. He said this, man can live about 40 days without food three days without water, eight minutes without air, but only one second without hope. You see, hope is so key. That's why the scriptures speak about it. They even speak about having this hope as an anchor for our souls, and we'll see this in a moment. But here's the thing that I want to say to us that I want us to be aware of. When you lose hope, you lose vision of your future, and you seem to always go back to your past. When you lose hope, you lose vision of your future, and you seem to retreat into what you've known. 
You go back into what you've known. And often we find ourselves where we've been pursuing this one, Jesus, who is hope, but we've lost sight of the one who is living amongst dead and things in Russia. And in the midst of that, we retreat back into old patterns and old behaviors and old cycles and mindsets and addictions, as we heard about earlier, because we've lost hope in the moment. But he is hope, and he's wanting to breathe hope into our life again. Paul encourages us with this. He says in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And in this story, we're going to see hearts that are enlightened, that are set ablaze, that are filled with the brightness and the warmth that comes from the glory of God that we would know this glorious inheritance. We have an inheritance. And he even says that he has an inheritance. He has an inheritance in you, and he has an inheritance in me. And so in this journey, we're going to see disciples going from this jaded position to a position of joy. That's what's going to take place. And, and I hope it breathes that same life expectancy and fulfillment into your hearts today. Luke 24, verse 13, and they're on the road to Emmaus. So I hope you've got your uh, walking shoes on. We've got a soundtrack to keep us going. I've got my cowboy boots because uh, the road to Emmaus is a little bit of activity we've got to be prepared for. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now Emmaus, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in a moment, but Emmaus, they don't know exactly where it is. They know it's about seven miles from Jerusalem, it's about three hours walk, and two disciples on the journey. Often they thought of as two men, but um, other Bible scholars will also point to the fact that the one was named Cleopas, and, his wa- and um, in another scripture, um, someone is described as the wife of him, and so they think this could also be a husband and a wife. It doesn't really matter. They on their journey towards Jerusalem. And I love the way it starts. If you're reading from the New King James, I've got the NRV, but in the New King James it says, now behold, it's a word that Luke loves to use. We see um, the book of Luke opens, and in the second chapter, we hear about the encounter with the shepherds, with the angels, where they, they use this favorite word of his, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. There was a moment to be aware of Jesus was bursting forth onto the scene. But here is another key moment where he says, now behold, and it's at the end, the last chapter, because Jesus is reappearing. Behold, and it's almost as if he's saying, if you think the angel choir singing at night while the sheep were left and the shepherds were heading to Jesus was something to be seen, here is something to be seen, because Jesus is heading to the disciples on the midst of a darkened night on a dusty road on Resurrection Sunday. This is something to behold, and you might wonder why. Why is this such a key thing? Why is this such a key moment? Well, maybe if you discover that you too are on that road, and it's darkening a little, and it's a little bit dusty, and you don't know the, the, the full outcome of what's going to be waiting for you, but you're returning to past things, maybe you would also be excited and ready to behold when you knew Jesus was on your trail. So the disciples are returning from Jerusalem, and they're returning, and, and some would say it's they're going home. Some would think this is where they are heading. And they've been there, and they've experienced all that's going on around Jesus' crucifixion and the empty tomb. They've been there for the empty tomb. They've heard the report, as we're going to see, that Jesus um, has risen, that's come from the angels. They've heard this. 
And yet they've, they've got the message. They've got the resurrection message. The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And yet they're leaving downcast, hopeless, and in a saddened condition. The mood is heavy. It's that same mood as if you had been to a funeral and said goodbye to a loved one or been to a hospital and walked out and you know you won't see them again. And, and there's a sense of discouragement and hopelessness because they had an expectation of what Jesus' life should look like. And it had gone down a different road and hadn't worked out like they thought. They had a misplaced expectation. And so now they are walking down because they had a misplaced expectation of the road Jesus should have gone down. Now they are going down a road that they never thought they would be returning to. And so they're journeying through it. And I don't want to be heavy on them because I'm wanting to find the synergy where we might be in the same place in our own life. Imagine you've pinned your hopes on an individual, given up everything, given up your, your home and family and your life because you want, to, you want to follow this person. You would follow them anywhere. But this world has become hostile and hateful to them. They don't see this person for who they are, this person who's loved and cared, this person who's given dignity to the outcast, this person who's healed um, the sick, this person who has touched those who are untouchable, this person who has taught and brought revelation where there's only dimness and confusion. The world has been hostile and hasn't understood, and they've killed him, and now he's dead. And what hope is there? You see, we've got the beauty of the New Testament and understanding from a new covenant lens what's happening, but they didn't in that moment. We've got Hebrews 6 verse 20 that says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, where our trailblazer, other versions say, Jesus has entered on our behalf. That's what we're celebrating. We reason from the finished work of the cross. We reason from the empty tomb. We reason from the occupied throne. We reason from a different perspective because we have been raised and we are seated in Christ Jesus. And we drop our anchor into his throne and our hope holds no matter where we are. But they're not in that place. What hope is there? And they're going to discover that hope isn't a title of feeling or emotion, but it's a person. Because not only is he the risen king, but he's the good shepherd. And it says, goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. He is goodness. And he is mercy. And he is following. Because he wants to set a table before you in the presence of your enemies, discouragement, hopelessness, fear. Because he is the good shepherd. Even as the risen king. That doesn't change who he is. And here in this moment, hope is a person. And they are hearing the footfalls, but they haven't recognized that hope is catching up with them. That he is blazing a dusty trail on a darkening night with his disciples in his sight. That's what's happening in the midst of this moment as they're on their road to Emmaus. Now, when you look at what Emmaus means, if you look in the, the earliest Greek um, manuscripts, they describe that word Emmaus as this word alarmus, which, is a different, um, which was a different moment. That was the moment where God encountered Jacob in his dream. Jacob was running, also a bit hopeless and displaced, but God uh, appears to him, reveals himself to him, reminds him of the promise, and sets him back into the path of destiny. And that's the same word here used for Emmaus. It's not so much about a destination, but it's about a moment. It's about a moment where Jesus is going to arrive in the midst of their journey of hopelessness, and he's going to reveal himself to them, remind 
remind them of the promise, turn them around and set them back into destiny. And it's not only a moment we look back upon, but it's a moment we live in every moment that we allow Jesus to reveal himself to us and remind us of the promise we have in him. This is a good Easter message and I'm enjoying it. And so this is what's happening. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Jesus himself. I mean, this is so beautiful. Here they are. They're downcast. They're in a saddened state. They, they, you know, they, they are, I can't believe this has happened. That's what they're saying to each other. They might be depressed, discouraged, hopeless, cynical, in that negative spiral that happens. And, you know, in that place, we normally um, don't want to be around those sort of people. But Jesus is different because he draws near to them in this moment. Leanne's nodding her head in the front row because she knew yesterday and she did tell me this, I was hard to be around because I was locked away preparing. I'd been on an Easter egg hunt, but I'm banting and doing a keto diet that Stacy had given me. And I, I couldn't enjoy the sustenance I needed to help me in my prep time. And so I was feeling depressed, discouraged, hopeless, cynical. I was in a negative spiral and I was snapping as you do at that moment with my family. And I was, uh, they didn't want to be around me and I was pushing them away. I reminded my, I was kind of that person you see in that meme on Facebook where it says, uh, what sort of eggs do you want this morning? Scrambled, omelette, or fried? I'd like Cadbury's, please. That's the, the zone I was living in. But here's Jesus. He doesn't mind what situation they find themselves in because he knows no matter where you're at, he'll meet you where you're at and he'll love you as you are. And so he pitches up, he draws near, he comes close. It doesn't matter that uh, the condition they're in, even if you feel unworthy and undeserving and unimportant, that doesn't affect Jesus. He draws near, even if you are imperfect, because he is perfect. And he perfectly draws near and understands exactly what you're going through. And verse 16 says, they were kept from recognizing him. There are numerous reasons, and I believe that bring a wholeness to this, but the one I'm emphasizing today, that's one that's held to is this that they didn't recognize Jesus because depression clouds vision and blocks insight. Now, I'm not speaking about the condition of depression where we know that he is the healer and he can heal us. I'm talking about the state of mindset, that when we're in that place and we're just, we're just wallowing in depression, where we could actually take authority, responsibility, renew our minds and shift that thing. Different to, and, and I know that we can pray for the condition and see people healed of that. And they're wonderful medical teams and uh, that work with people. But this is what I'm talking about. Depression clouds vision and blocks insight. Hopelessness robs you of perspective. When you're feeling hopeless, you've got no perspective. Why? Because if you had hope, you'd be anchored into the throne and you'd have a throne perspective. But when you're hopeless, you're not holding on to your anchor. You're not anchored in and you've got a low perspective. You're not seeing much. And a downcast heart cannot see the opportunity when it's right in front of you. I mean, here the disciples have the greatest opportunity to, ex to celebrate and engage with the risen king. They're not only following Jesus heading to the cross, but they've, they've, they've got Jesus in their midst who's been to the cross, who's uh, yesterday would have been and taken the keys of hell, Hades, and death. He would have taken that. This would have happened. He is the risen king, the victorious king, the glorious one, the king of kings and lord of lords. And they're missing this opportunity that's right before them because they're unable to recognize that this is Jesus because they are in their discouragement, their disbelief, and their unbelief, and he's right here. He's right there in their midst, but they cannot perceive him. 
It's almost like there was that Bach violin music playing in the background, such beauty, but they caught in that rush hour moment and not aware of his presence. And the beauty that we see here is that God is right here for us, right in the midst of our discouragement, right in the midst when we, we cannot see. And don't allow yourself to be robbed of the opportunity by gaining, by um, opportunity of engaging with him because you are leaning into cynicism and the solitude that you find in discouragement. But I want to encourage you, find refuge in his promises and his faithfulness. It's a shift that needs to take place and it's a decision that you and I can make. And I know it's intimidating. I know it's hard. I know when we feel bruised, when we feel battered by maybe our history and our past experiences, and there's not that place of trust, and there's not that place of anticipation, and, and hope isn't alive in our hearts. It's, it's hard to lean into him. But I want to encourage you, as we have declared today, he is risen, and he is here. Where two or more are gathered, uh, he is there, right in the midst of them. He is here, right in the midst of us. And if you would lean forth, just like that lady with the issue of blood, if you would lean past all your restriction and all that pushes you back, and all your previous discouragement, and all your hurt, and feeling bad and, and bruised, if you would lean past and just take hold of him, he'll take hold of you and release resurrection life in and through you. I believe that. I believe that. I am fully convinced and fully persuaded that that's the truth. But we need to do that. And here the disciples, they've seen him killed. They've seen him crucified. And now they can't see him. And they're caught up in this place. They're downcast. I, I, I want to make this point. Dis, disappointment and discouragement are no respecter of persons. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're single or married, if you're white or black, if you're young or old, discouragement and disappointment will try come and find you. They will try make their way into your life and they will rob you of life and perspective. And so we need to put a halt to that. We need to shift that. And here's one of the ways we can do it. I often find when I'm speaking with people who are facing marital difficulties that it's often the, the conversations that they are having that are causing that. You know, you find out, say, what sort of conversations you're having? And I'm disappointed in them, um, and I'm discouraging them because they haven't lived up to what they should have lo- uh, lived up to. And all of these things are, and you think, you ask them the question, do you even love each other? And the response is, of course, of course we love each other. But love is what you do and what you say. Love is not just what you, your, your intentions and then you act out differently. Love is what you do and what you say. It shapes your attitudes. It shifts atmosphere. It redefines circumstances and relationships. So here's what I want to bring encouragement to you. If you are discouraged, change the conversation. Change the conversation because you'll find you can't complain and be hopeful and joyful at the same time. You just can't do it. And here's the beauty, is that hope is an outworking of who God is. He is the God of all hope. If you are in a situation or a room, circumstance and place, and you are not feeling hope, it's because you haven't invited God in, because when he arrives, hope arrives, because he is hope, and he is the God of all hope. And you can usher in the kingdom, because the kingdom is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And you can allow that in if we invite that in and if we shift the conversation. What conversations are we having and which ones do we need to shift? We're going to see it outwork here, verse 17. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Now they've heard about the resurrection. They've known that he's risen. They know the tomb's empty. 
And they're discussing those things, but it's the manner in which they're discussing them that are faithless. And so they are downcast and they are sad. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, asked Jesus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in the last days? Says, are you basically from another planet? Don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem? Jesus is what's happened in Jerusalem. He's telling that to Jesus. I love the irony of it. But here's the beauty of Jesus. Verse 19. What things? He asks. You see, here is the good shepherd. Here is the great physician. Here is the master counselor. Here is the one who knows they are carrying confusion and disappointment. And he gives them opportunity to tell him what has happened and what things have taken place that have happened and taken place with him, but he gives them opportunity to say it because he wants to engage with them in the midst of their pain and in the midst of their confusion and hurt. And he asked them, even as if he didn't know, he is the one who had been denied. He had every right to be indignant with this as they start to tell him, because he is the one who's been denied and betrayed and flogged and beaten and stripped and humiliated. But in the midst of that, normally where we felt humiliated and pain and shame, we would pull back, but not with Jesus. You see, because his humility is born out of authority and total security. He's not intimidated by those things. Actually, he knew he needed to go through them so that you wouldn't have to. And so he's able to engage with them even as they start to speak about these things. And he allows them to open up like a flood. And he says, what sort of things? And they start to speak. You see, Jesus is real. He's near. He's available. He's not intimidated. He is totally secure. He is totally humble, yet he has all authority. Nothing is going to scare him away from you or me. Your doubt, your confusion, your Emmaus Road experience isn't going to push him away. Rather, he is blazing a trail to you and pursuing you with goodness and mercy, kindness and love. If he is willing to go to the cross... How much more is he willing to trace us down dark and dusty roads? Nothing can stop his love for us. And they say these things about Jesus of Nazareth. And they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. He was. You see, they are standing before the great I am. And they're starting off with he was. They don't realize that I am is in their midst. And they stuck in he was. Are you missing what is because you stuck in what was? Are we missing what is because we're stuck in what was? Verse 20. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped. You see, we had hope. We had hopes. We had plans. We had expectations. Here's my encouragement to you. We've got to learn to put our hope in God and not in our best laid plans. Many of us have hopes and plans and expectations. You see, they had hoped that he would come and overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what they had hoped. But what they didn't realize is their hope would have fallen short because when you see the hope outworked, it has such greater effect because their mindset was of the hope that would have been, like I say, deliverance for a nation. Because they knew Moses when he had set the Israelite free from the Egyptians. They knew Gideon when he had set the Israelites free from the Midianites. They knew David when he had set the, the Israelites free from the Philistines. You see, every deliverer in Israel's history had physically delivered the people, either through the power of God or through a massive army. And that's their expectation. They've got this one-dimensional view. This is how God's going to do it. 
Have you heard that story about the man in the sea in the helicopter? You know, he's drowning, and he says, God, save me. And uh, a boat comes past and throws a life jacket. He says, no, I don't want it. God's going to save me. I'm a man of faith. Then uh, uh, another uh, uh, lifeguard comes, one of those cruising vessels, and they want to bring him in. And he says, no, no, God's going to save me. I've prayed. I'm a man of faith. Then a helicopter comes in, and they jump in the water, and they get around him to bring him out. God's going to save me. I don't need you. I'm a man of faith. Then we know that he drowns and he goes to heaven and he's like, God, where were you on that one? And he says, I sent a, a life jacket, I sent a, a life boat, I sent a helicopter. But you know, we can be so set on our expectation, our plan, on our hope that we miss the one who is hope. And you see, this is the thing. Jesus didn't come just to deliver uh, people from a regime for a moment in a time scale. Jesus came to bring total freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from sickness, freedom from condemnation, freedom from fear, freedom from addictions, free, freedom from hopelessness. He came to bring freedom in every area. He is the one who sets free. And whom the Son sets free is? Free indeed. I'm going to give you one Moment. This is your moment. Own it, as Eminem would say. Turn to someone and encourage them because I just need a sip of water. Like uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that's, that's, that's not the sort of encouragement I was expecting. Remember the previous point, shift the conversation. We need, we need to um, step into a little bit more of that. You engaged. He came to free from chains, invisible chains that bind us up. He came to bring total freedom and newness of life. Let's carry on. And what is more, they continue with saying what's happened. And what is more, it is the third day since this all took place. In addition, totally lost track of time. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They, I'm saying it excited. I'm in a different moment. Sorry, this is not these guys. I'm just excited on this resurrection Sunday because I've got hope. They're more like, and what is more? It is the third day since this all took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did you not know the Messiah had to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? There are two indictments. One, the first one is foolish. He's not berating them. He's saying, you're living ignorant of a revelation of the promises and the life that you can find in God's word. Why aren't you searching out his word? It's all here for you. If you had been in his word, you wouldn't be on this road to nowhere in the dust and the darkness filled with discouragement and hopelessness. If you had read his word, you would be celebrating in anticipation of the full out working of what it means to be a new creation and resurrection life. Don't be foolish. Don't be ignorant. And then he continues to say, or slow of heart to believe, because here's the thing. We can read all the promises without believing. And as Hebrews 4 verse 2 says, it won't profit you anything. You can come and listen to a thousand Easter services, and it will do nothing for you if you do not combine the word with faith. You see, faith is the thing that flips the switch, attracts the activity of heaven and the Holy Spirit's dynamic working in and through our lives. That's what faith does, and we've got to combine it. 
with what we're reading, with faith. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, here's the beauty. So Jesus says, guys, don't be foolish. Don't be slow. Um, what, what's that statement? He's slow of heart to believe. But here's the beauty. Jesus doesn't leave us with the problem. He then provides the solution. That's why he's come to encounter them on the road. He never wants to leave you in that place heading nowhere quickly. He wants to bring you back in to the fullness that he paid the price for and that you have um, access to as Leanne encouraged us in. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses, then Jesus starts to describe as with all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now to us, this, this doesn't have great meaning. Yeah, we know we can read, Rich did a great job on Friday, and we can read through the Old Testament, and we know the scarlet thread where we can see the blood of Jesus all the way through every book. We know that Christ is in the Old Testament concealed, and the New Testament revealed. We know that there are types and uh, shadows and everything that point towards Him. But you've got to remember, we're looking through a new covenant um, approach. We're looking through a lens of looking for who Jesus is all through the Scripture. But they hadn't been brought up that way. They came from a Hebrew tradition. They came from a Jewish society, and here's the key to understanding this conversation, and it should unlock something as we understand what they went through. You see, in all of Hebrew history, Hebrew history, there's not one, not even one rabbi or biblical interpreter who's interpreted Genesis through Malachi and found a suffering Messiah. There's never a suffering Messiah. Not one Jewish interpreter found a Messiah who would suffer. They find a throne, you find an army, you find overthrowment of regimes and governments, you find all of those things, but you don't find the Messiah facing humiliation across or a tomb. They, they, they've got no grid for that. That's never been in their perception. They didn't have a lens for that. And so when Jesus says this, did, you, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory, they're they taken aback. They arrested in the midst of this moment because they didn't realize that the thorns were the way to the throne and that the cross was the way to the crown. They had an understand that they'd never seen the wounded healer as being the Messiah in Isaiah 53 verse 5, where it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And suddenly, as they start to receive this new covenant lens, looking through Jesus, seeing him all the way through the scriptures, seeing that he is the suffering servant, the suffering king, and he is still king of kings and lord of lords, the anointed one that removes bondages and yokes and things that would weigh us down and destroy them. Suddenly, their hearts start to burn within them because for the first time, two Jewish people on a lonely road to, the, to, to nowhere realize he came and he suffered for us. And their hearts start to burn. Their hearts start to burn. And as they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go further. And you know, once, you, once your heart has started to burn, once the scriptures have come alive to you, once revelation of, of what's happening as we're celebrating this weekend is dawning on you, you, you don't want to leave that moment. And they say, please, please stay with us. Verse 29, they urged him strongly, strongly, Rich, you should have urged me to have one of those Cadbury's chocolates on Friday strongly, but you didn't. Strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and he began to give it to them. And something starts to dawn on them. They've seen Jesus with the feeding of the 5,000 do this. They've heard that he did it with the disciples in the upper room. And they're starting to realize that the bread of life, 
who on the, on the cross oft gave thanks for those who were his and then offered his life into the hands of the Father who was broken, is now starting to distribute his life to them. And as they take it, there is remembrance of what that means and all that's contained. And suddenly they realize who he is and he is gone. But it doesn't faze them. There's still an excitement within them and the conversation has shifted because you don't need to see him because we live by faith and not by sight. And their hearts have come alive to who he is. They know he is near whether they can see him or not. And something shifts and it says this, in this moment their conversation changes. They go from confusion to clarity, discouragement to faith, lostness to foundness, cold and dim hearts to burning and alive hearts. And suddenly they get up, verse 33, at once and they return to Jerusalem. They were on a dark, dusty road to nowhere, feeling full of um, discouragement and hopeless, but they've encountered Jesus. Their hearts are burning and because he got up, they can get up. Because he has risen, they can rise because he is the resurrection. They've got resurrection life at work within them and they start to head back to the disciples to to, to tell the disciples, he is risen, he is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. I want to pray for us at this point. Some of us are on a journey. And I love, I love that he arrives in the midst of the journey. I love that they arrive at the so-called destination, but nobody really cares because it never was the destination in the first place. It was about destiny, not a destination. And there's some people here today, and it wasn't about coming to a destination called Harvest Church, but it's a matter of destiny. And you've been walking a journey, maybe in hurt, discouragement, disappointment, and hopelessness. But there's a sound that is playing, and it's not a violin, but it's the sound of footfalls falling near you that carry hope, because he is walking near. And all you have to do is say, I want you to come in. If you're here today, as you just close your eyes, if you're here today, I'm going to ask twice, one for people who just need that fresh dose of hope, that injection of resurrection, life and hope in them, but I'm also wanting those that have never given their life to Jesus. There was someone here this morning who hadn't. If you have not given your life to Jesus, this is that destiny moment where you get to ask him to come into your life and you get to to open up your life to him. No, I'm not going to ask you to stand or do anything else. I just want to be in faith with you. If you. If you're here and you've never made that commitment, this is your moment. Can you just raise your hand? I want to be in agreement with you. Raise it high. I missed the hand today. If you're here today and you're saying it's Resurrection Sunday and George, I need you to be in faith with me just for hope in the situation that I'm facing, even as Rich has already prayed that. I just want to be in agreement with you and pray a prayer. I want to see so I can actually, um, we're to agree on anything. Uh, there's power in that. So if you can just raise your hand, I see people raising hands, raising hands, raising hands. We are going to be in faith together in this. Father, I just thank you, as I've said, for the gift of, of a salvation. I thank you, Lord, that we get to enjoy the beauty of it, the life of it. I thank you. It's not just about getting to experience eternal life, but it's about a quality of life that we can have here. And I thank you, Jesus, that quality life is your resurrection life. And I just pray right now, Lord, that you would come and that you would re-anchor us, that we would have this hope as an anchor for our souls, that you would re-anchor us into the, into the throne room um, right now, that you would anchor us, Jesus, right into 
terms of where you're seated, that we would be securely fastened. And I just pray that you would just come and just breathe hope, that you would breathe resurrection life, that you would breathe freedom, that you would breathe liberty, deliverance, your, your kindness, your lavishness, your goodness, your grace, your favor, your mercy through your authority over each one that's raised their hand. And I thank you, Lord, that as we change the conversation here in agreement here today, that we'll be walking a different journey to a different destiny because, Lord, we have come alive to the things you have called us to walk. And I pray that in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. And we all said, amen. amen.